Welcome to the Queen of Hearts podcast. And here's the queen herself, registered dietitian Heather Klug. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Queen of Hearts podcast. With me today is the nurse in our center, Kirsten Hastings. Welcome, Kirsten. Hi, Heather. Well, I'm glad you're with me today, Kirsten, because November is National Diabetes Month. So today, Kirsten and I are going to be talking about a very important topic, and that is pre-diabetes. We'll go over what exactly that is, the warning signs, and the adverse health effects of pre-diabetes. And then at the end, we'll go over the steps we can take to prevent and manage pre-diabetes. So let's start by talking about prediabetes and what that really means. I often hear people say borderline diabetes. However, the correct terminology is prediabetes. Kirsten, can you share with our listeners what prediabetes is? Sure. Prediabetes is when blood glucose levels are higher than the normal range, but they're not high enough to be considered type 2 diabetes. So you may have heard terms like impaired glucose tolerance or impaired fasting glucose. These are all things that we use to describe the prediabetes situation. So doctors can use a couple of different means to determine if you might have prediabetes. These are all lab tests. I would say the most common one is a fasting glucose. This is where you don't have anything to eat and nothing to drink except water for about 12 hours. And we look at fasting glucose between 100 to 125 for a result that would indicate prediabetes. The second most common test that they might use, and again, this is a blood test, is something called a hemoglobin A1C. And this is actually the average of your blood sugar over about a two to three month period of time. So for someone who would be in the pre-diabetes state, the result would be between 5.7 and 6.4%. I think in my experience, the least common test that they use is the two-hour plasma glucose test. And the range that would indicate pre-diabetes for that is between 140 and 199. I guess what I'd like us to think about as we talk about pre-diabetes today is to think about blood glucose on a spectrum. So we think about starting out with a normal blood sugar, which is called normal glycemia, and then that can progress to prediabetes. And then the next step would actually be the development of type 2 diabetes. Okay, thank you for that explanation. And how prevalent is prediabetes in the United States, Kirsten? Well, unfortunately, our numbers and statistics on this are pretty high. Uh, We look at the National Diabetes Statistics Report from 2020. Uh, which is generated by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and they looked at our results from 2018. It showed 88 million people that were 18 and older with the condition prediabetes. When we think about that, it's about 34% of the U.S. adult population, so one out of three adults, actually. We look at slightly more men having the condition than women. It's 37% men versus 29% for women. And this number is high for both sexes. And we see prevalence of prediabetes was similar across all ethnic groups and educational levels. So it sounds like nobody is spared and that everyone is at risk for getting prediabetes. Let's talk next about the risk factors that increase risk for getting prediabetes. You know, that's a really important thing to focus on. 
So there are several risk factors that are associated with developing prediabetes. I'll go through them, but it's something that we should be thinking about with our general health history in general. Having a family member, and when I say that, I mean a parent, brother, or sister that has a history of type 2 diabetes would put us at an increased risk. Your ethnicity, uh, depending on that, can put you at higher risk. Uh, we do see higher rates with American Indian, African American, Hispanic, Alaskan Native, Hawaiian Pacific Islander, and Asian people. I think one of the largest predictors that we see is weight gain. And we look at the higher a person's weight is, the higher the actual risk of developing prediabetes is. So even a 10-pound weight increase can increase the risk and change someone's risk perspective of getting prediabetes. And then we like to think about if we do have a weight gain, where you have the weight gain. We know that people that have a larger waist circumference are more likely to develop prediabetes. So when I say that, I'm thinking about for men greater than 40 inches or women greater than 35 inches. It's a little bit different for Asians where for men it would be greater than 35 inches and for women it would be greater than 31 inches. So again, that larger waist circumference we know that abdominal fat is associated with insulin resistance more than other types of areas where fat may develop. Another biggie to think about is how active you are. So we know that if you have little to no physical activity, that's going to put you at higher risk. Just as a reminder, we hope that people are getting at least 150 minutes a week consistently of moderate activity. So if we're inactive, that's, that's really increasing our risk. Age is another thing that we think about. As we age, we're more likely to develop disease, and prediabetes is one of those. We look uh, in this population, it seems to be greater than 45 years is where we see that cut point where people start to be at a higher risk. There's some other health conditions that can put you at risk if you have cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, if you have abnormal cholesterol panel. For example, if the Good cholesterol is low, and if you have high triglycerides, those are both lab values that can indicate you would be at higher risk of developing prediabetes. And then lastly, if you are a woman and you had a history of gestational diabetes, or if you had delivered a baby greater than nine pounds, this would increase your risk, as well as a syndrome called polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS. Both of those would put you at higher risk. I guess what I really want to say is that we need to think about this in terms of our own individual risk. I've given some large categories, but I would hope that people would really want to think about it from a personal level. And the easiest way to figure out what your risk is, is to take the pre-diabetes risk quiz, which has been developed by the CDC. You can easily find that if you go online to cdc.gov slash diabetes slash risk test. If you put in any of those words together, you'll likely come up with the very simple risk quiz. You can do it and it will give you your results right there. And it also help you define your results and what you should do about the what your individual number is. Yeah, and we'll put that link in our podcast description. And if you happen to find our podcast on the Karen Janssen or YouTube channel, it will be listed in there as well. All right, let's review the signs and symptoms that our listeners can be on the lookout for that could indicate they might have prediabetes. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Unfortunately, in some cases, there may not be any signs of having prediabetes. This is why prediabetes goes undetected so commonly. Sometimes if people do develop signs and symptoms, they don't show up until someone has actually progressed from prediabetes to actual developing type 2 diabetes. So if you have any other risk factors that we spoke about earlier, the main thing to do is ask your doctor about getting tested for prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. And they would run those tests that I spoke about earlier, those lab tests. If there were to be signs and symptoms, the things that are commonly associated with either prediabetes or diabetes are unusual thirst, having a real frequent desire to urinate, a change in your vision. Most commonly, it's a blurred vision. If you have any wounds or sores, they are either slow to heal or they just don't heal at all. And then lastly, just extreme fatigue. So that's a common one. So you have to think about, is there a reason for that fatigue? But when it has no apparent reason, you might want to be thinking about some of the things we've discussed and think about prediabetes. Okay, those are good things to know. Thank you, Kirsten. Now, the reason we're talking about prediabetes in this episode is because having prediabetes isn't benign or something to blow off. It's serious and a warning sign for current and future health problems. Yeah, I can't emphasize that enough. You're so correct. Don't let the pre and prediabetes fool you. Think about this as a yellow flashing light in a stoplight. The body is trying to say, warning, warning, something isn't right. Pay attention to me. So I think it's one of those things that we all have to take personal accountability and really consider our level of risk, consider how we're taking care of ourselves. If something doesn't seem right, we really should pursue it. So most people that have prediabetes are showing signs of something called insulin resistance and some beta cell dysfunction. I know this might get a little technical, but I'm going to run through what's actually happening in the body. When this happens, cells aren't responding to insulin, and therefore glucose cannot get into the cells where glucose can be used for energy. Instead, what happens is the glucose stays elevated in the bloodstream. And again, this is called insulin resistance. The beta cells that I spoke about, they're the ones that make insulin in the pancreas, and they think they need to send out more insulin because of the higher blood glucose levels. And so those cells are working a bit over time. Eventually, those beta cells get tired and they stop working or they die off altogether. This creates quite a vicious cycle for high blood glucose levels with not enough insulin getting released and then the cells being resistant to any insulin that is present. Now, I don't think people think too much about you know, the danger of maybe having too much glucose in the bloodstream. But can you explain to our listeners why having too much glucose in our bloodstream can be very dangerous? Sure. Yeah. If blood glucose levels stay too high for too long, this can cause serious health problems throughout our entire body. High blood glucose levels increase your risk for developing heart disease or having a heart attack or having a stroke, kidney disease, eye damage, and eventually can lead to blindness, skin problems, and problems with wound healing, as I mentioned a bit earlier, and actually irreversible nerve damage. All of that with high blood glucose levels sounds very concerning. And in my work with patients, I encounter, you know, many people who think prediabetes isn't a big deal because they don't have full-blown type 2 diabetes 
or because they don't have to take insulin. I'm sure you get that too, Kirsten. Um, And research from the past decade also shows that major changes are already happening in the body, even before someone gets diagnosed with prediabetes, like in the very early stages of prediabetes. Things like microvascular disorders, which happens in the small blood vessels, and then macrovascular disorders, which are the larger blood vessels. And we used to think, you know, these microvascular and macrovascular disorders didn't occur until someone had diabetes for a long period of time or if their diabetes was uncontrolled. But that thinking has really changed with the newer research that's been coming out. Can you explain more about that too? To our listeners? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. There are two things that happen in the pre-diabetes stage that people who have it are often unaware of. The first thing is how high blood glucose levels can damage the blood vessels. Glucose that doesn't get converted into energy by the cells due to insulin resistance ends up floating around in the bloodstream and damaging the inner lining of both the small and the large blood vessels. The blood vessels respond by depositing plaques. This process keeps getting repeated and eventually the plaque gets larger and larger and it becomes harder and harder for blood to flow through. So you're building up an accumulation inside making the blood vessels more narrow. This leads to something called atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries. When arteries are hardened and the blood has a hard time getting through, blood vessels constrict and this can also of course increase your blood pressure. This leads to macrovascular problems such as heart disease, stroke, and peripheral vascular disease. If that's not enough, high amounts of glucose in the bloodstream also damage nerves and the small blood vessels that lead to your hands, feet, kidneys, and eyes. Three microvascular complications, retinopathy, neuropathy, and nephropathy, have all been found in people with prediabetes. Once microvascular complications begin, they're often progressive, And although they can be mediated somewhat through lifestyle changes, they are there. So the first reason microvascular and macrovascular disorders are seen in prediabetes is because high blood glucose levels are causing damage. What is the second reason? What else is happening? Yeah, the second reason is because many people with prediabetes also have other risk factors that put them at higher risk for microvascular and macrovascular disorders. As I mentioned before, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high triglycerides, and then a low amount of that good cholesterol, which is the HDL. They are often overweight or obese. They are many times physically inactive and have somewhat unhealthy eating habits. The combination of the high blood glucose, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and their overweight status plus the inactivity and diet exacerbates the problem. This may be why many studies are now showing that having prediabetes is a very strong predictor of cardiovascular disease developing in the future. So the message we want to drive home, both Kirsten and I, is that the damage is already being done in the prediabetes stage, sometimes irreversible damage. And if changes aren't made, prediabetes progresses to type 2 diabetes. How quickly do people with prediabetes progress? to type 2 diabetes, Kirsten? What is the research showing? Yeah, I mean, there is going to be a range. Research shows that if lifestyle changes are not made after a diagnosis of prediabetes, then there's a 50% chance of developing type 2 diabetes within 10 years. 
It can happen in a shorter time frame, uh, maybe like three to four years, but a lot of this depends on lifestyle in general. Okay, now that we've scared people about prediabetes, it's important to point out that prediabetes can be reversible or the progression from prediabetes to type 2 diabetes can be delayed for decades, especially if you make changes early on. There's a lot of power in positive lifestyle change. I've seen this firsthand in programs I've run helping people with living a healthier lifestyle. They go from having prediabetes to being what's called normal glycemic. So, you know, now everything's kind of working like it should and they can stay there with maintaining a healthy lifestyle. That's so true, Heather, and that's what we're all about at the Caring Young Center and just the idea of having that healthy lifestyle. Lifestyle change is often the most powerful way to address prediabetes and reversing prediabetes. It's been shown in many landmark clinical trials, such as the Diabetes Prevention Program and the Finnish Diabetes Prevention Study. These studies really compared a control group a medication-only group, and an intensive lifestyle intervention group. The lifestyle intervention focused on healthy eating, regular exercise, and a very modest weight loss of 5 to 7% of the total body weight. Compared to the control group, the lifestyle intervention group decreased their risk for developing type 2 diabetes by 58%. The lifestyle intervention was also twice as powerful as those taking diabetes medications to reduce their risk for developing type 2 diabetes. In the Diabetes Prevention Program Outcome Study, research found that intensive lifestyle, but not the metformin or the diabetes medication therapy, had a 56% success rate in reversing prediabetes to that normal glycemic levels from the long-term standpoint. So just fantastic. Yeah, those are huge outcomes right there, or just huge numbers in reducing the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. What about reducing risk for cardiovascular disease? Well, it's wonderful that the healthy lifestyle is going to give us good health overall. These studies also found that lifestyle intervention reduced several risk factors. They were found to decrease blood pressure, decrease in atherogenic, small, dense LDL particles. And just as a reminder, the LDL is what we call the bad cholesterol. They were shown to increase in the HDL cholesterol. That's the good cholesterol that we want more of. They decreased triglycerides. They decreased the body mass index. And they decreased weight circumference. So Heather, I know you know all about these kind of things. Why don't we talk about some action steps that people can take to manage prediabetes? Yeah, the first step would be to see your doctor to determine if you have prediabetes or risk factors that increase your risk for prediabetes. After that, there are three key areas to focus on. And I mentioned earlier that, you know, there's programs that I've run. This is exactly what we have people focus on are these three areas. So if you're overweight or your waist circumference is above, you know, the recommended guidelines, the goal is to aim for a 5 to 7% weight loss. I know that doesn't seem like a huge amount to people, but again, the research shows even losing those small amounts really help in reducing risk for type 2 diabetes, or if you're in that prediabetes range, it can get you right back down into that normal glycemic area. 
The second thing to do would be to move your body. We talked about that a little bit earlier, and I think you mentioned this too, Kirsten, but really trying to get in that 150 minutes or more of moderate intensity physical activity, whatever you like to do. There are two main reasons you want to be exercising regularly when you have prediabetes. One is that it's going to help with losing weight. And then the second reason, and probably the more important reason, is that whenever you exercise, you're using glucose for energy. So if you happen to have some extra glucose in your bloodstream, exercise is going to burn that off and kind of use it, and it'll help with keeping your blood sugar levels in a little bit healthier range. And then the third thing is following a healthy eating plan. And, you know, this might be different for different people, but it's usually something that's pretty similar, you know, to a Mediterranean kind of diet. So trying to get in a lot of plant-based foods like veggies and the fruits and so on. And a lot of research has shown that the Mediterranean diet, for whatever reason, we don't fully know why yet, it really seems to be especially helpful in women who have prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. But a couple key areas I would say to really focus on if you're looking to make some changes with what you eat, first step would be to cut out as many sugary foods and beverages as you can, okay? Because those foods, you know, you you take in something with a lot of sugar in it and your body's just going to break that down really, really quickly. It doesn't hang around for too long, so it'll drive up your blood sugars in a short amount of time. And then your blood sugars will often come crashing down pretty quickly too. Another good area to work on is choosing whole grains in place of refined grains. That way you're getting the fiber and you're getting more nutrition in there. Uh, The other thing to emphasize, however, with whole grains is that you still need to watch your portion sizes of them because they still have carbs in them. So if you're in that prediabetes range, if you eat a large amount of a whole grain, it still can drive up your blood sugars, okay? Third thing I would recommend is, again, to eat plenty of foods high in fiber. So the veggies, the fruits, the dried beans, split peas, lentils, nuts, and seeds. And then the last thing is to limit the ultra-processed foods. I think in the future I'm going to do a podcast on this too, but ultra-processed foods are things that are really high in sugar, fat, and salt and have little to no nutritional value in them. There's some interesting research on that, but uh, really doesn't help when you have prediabetes, okay? So we want to cut back on those kind of things and bring in more of the healthy stuff, okay? Now, the last thing I just want to say with that, with healthy lifestyle, is the care Karen Yan Center is focused on helping people take action on all three of these areas I just mentioned. So I'd like to encourage our listeners to contact us for assistance with understanding the importance of knowing your metabolic burn rate. That's how many calories you burn, if you're not sure. Uh, We can also offer general nutrition support and guidance. And then we can also provide ongoing healthy lifestyle coaching with Kirsten. So our phone number, if you'd like to take advantage of these services, our phone number is area code 414-649-5767. 
The other way to reach out to us is via email, and that is at Center at aah.org. And I'll put both the phone number and that email address too in our podcast description as well. All right, Kirsten, how about any last words of advice for our listeners when it comes to prediabetes? Yeah, wonderful. We've gone through kind of a lot of information here, but I think the takeaway is to really take prediabetes seriously. Think about it as a fork in the road. The path of no change in your lifestyle will most likely lead to the progression of type 2 diabetes and therefore a higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease. The path of a positive lifestyle change, it leads to prevention or delay of type 2 diabetes. It can possibly reverse back to that normal glycemia situation and again, a reduced risk for heart disease and just a higher quality of life in general. I really encourage people to think about the things that they're doing, the things that they're eating, and really say, you know, is this helping me? Is this a healthy choice? And consider those options. The thing about prediabetes is much of the treatment or reversal of it is all within that lifestyle control. And so we have the power to make those changes and get back to a a normal glycemia situation. All right. That's excellent advice to end on, Kirsten. Thank you so much for joining me today on this podcast episode and discussing the importance of taking prediabetes seriously and sharing your tips as a registered nurse and health behavior coach. Thank you for listening today, everyone. And as we always say, be the ruler of your own heart. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us on the Queen of Hearts podcast. Our podcast is recorded here at the Karen Yance Women's Cardiac Awareness Center inside Aurora St. Luke's Medical Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more heart-healthy tips, info, recipes, and more, visit our website at www.karenyancecenter.org, like us on Facebook at Karen Yance Center, and follow us on Pinterest. If you like what you hear, subscribe to our show and be sure to tell your friends. Until next time, ladies, be ruler of your own heart.